Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the whole Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the Christmas Carol, What Child Is This? The author made some really interesting word choices in the first few lines. He says, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? If you read this carefully, you'll hear two different ways of saying death. The Christ child is laid to rest, which is one way that people talk about dying. And he's also sleeping, which is another way. What an interesting way to describe someone's birth. It seems that in just the way that the author paints a word picture, he keeps the death of Christ in mind. Of course, where in the first verse, it talks about Christ's death in a hidden and cryptic way. In the second verse, it talks about it explicitly. It says, Nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. In other words, from the very beginning of Jesus' life, his death was in view. You can't look at the birth of Jesus without also seeing his death. Now, this might seem odd, but it has been a traditional way of telling the story of Jesus' birth right back to the very beginning of Christianity. In the painting on your bulletin, the manger where Jesus is laid is intentionally made to look like a burial sarcophagus. And the writing on the sarcophagus in Latin confirms that it was used to bury someone. You can't look at the, this painting of the birth of Jesus without also seeing his death. In the Gospel of Matthew, not 60 years after Jesus was born, the Magi come to visit the baby Jesus at his house, and they bring him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, both frankincense and myrrh were spices used to embalm a body. In fact, we know from the Gospel of John in chapter 19 that Jesus was embalmed using myrrh. Obviously, these are very morbid gifts to give to a baby, but once again, for Matthew, you can't look at the birth of Jesus without also seeing his death. Now, finally, in the passage we just read, Luke says that Jesus was born in a stable near, the, near an inn. Now, stables during this time would have looked a lot more like caves than the wooden structures that we look, think of. In verse 7, it says that Mary wrapped him in cloths. Then at the end of the story, when Luke describes how Jesus was buried, it says that he was placed in a tomb, which was cut in stone, in other words, a cave, and wrapped in cloths and laid in it. And Luke makes a point of saying that women were involved in the burial, just like he makes a point of saying that Mary was involved in the birth. It's true, wrapping a kid in cloths was a perfectly normal thing to do during that time to a newborn kid, so you'd wonder why Luke would have bothered to mention it, if not in order to draw our attention to this parallel between Jesus' birth and his burial. For Luke, as for many Christians through the last 2,000 years, you can't look at the birth of Jesus without also seeing his death. What this means is that it has been the conviction of Christians since the beginning of, that the death of Jesus was never a surprise. 
It was in view from the very beginning of his life, when he was laid in what looked like a tomb, and he was given embalming implements as a gift for his birth. Jesus did not go to the cross because he was forced into it, or carried along by the powerful Roman Empire. In fact, as we see in this passage, God was working through even the selfish and brutal practices of the Romans to accomplish his purposes. Caesar calls for a census to tax the provinces and to show them who is really in charge. But we know that all of this actually took place, that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem, like the Old Testament foretold. It's clear that Caesar is just a puppet for God's own purposes. And Pilate was no different. He was a puppet for God's purposes when he sent Jesus to the cross. No, the death and suffering and agony of Jesus was in view from the very beginning. Jesus did not come to establish a glorious kingdom and to be honored above all other people, only to fail and be killed for his trouble. No, from the very beginning, God knew, and Jesus knew, that he came here to suffer in love and service for this world, and that would be most exemplified on the cross. Now imagine that. The God of the whole universe, the one who is worthy of all our praise, intentionally became one of us, so he could intentionally die for us. The God who by his station deserves all the honor and glory of this world, decided to endure pain and suffering and shame and mockery and spinning for us and for our salvation. This was true since the beginning of time. Nothing here was an accident. Nothing was a surprise. And ultimately, this was how God showed his glory. This is how God showed who he really is. The Bible is pretty great, and it's pretty important for knowing who God is. But even that is a revelation of God that pales in comparison to the time that he actually took on flesh and walked among us. The word of God that we read in the Bible became a person. If you want to know what God looks like at its very core and at its essence, the best place to look at is the cross where God took on flesh to die for us. And even to this day, Revelation tells us, Christ wears his wounds from the cross like a badge of honor as the most glorious act he ever completed. And so you see, even as early as Christ's birth, two parallel visions for what honor really looks like. At the beginning of this passage, you have the most honored man in the world, Augustus Caesar, who was worshipped as a god long before he died. He was thanked everywhere he went for bringing peace to this world by winning the last of many civil wars. He was called the Son of God and the Savior of this world, He would parade around dressed like the god Mars to show how powerful he was in war. On the other hand, by the end of this passage, you have another vision for what honor looks like. The true son of God stepped down from his throne in heaven to become a helpless baby wrapped in cloths and laid in a feeding trough because there was no room for him anywhere else. And all this was just foreshadowing for the most honorable thing he ever did, which was taking up his cross and suffering for me and for you. As Christians, we have come to worship on Christmas Eve to recognize what true honor is that is what doing what Christ is doing, not what Caesar did. Deep in our hearts, though, we all kind of want to look like Caesar. We want everyone to thank us wherever we go. We want to be universally admired just for being us. We want all the power in the world to reward our friends and crush our enemies. But all of that doesn't feel quite as good when you get it. You're going to feel insecure, always in competition with everyone else to see who can get the most honor and the most glory. 
It's not a fun way to live. So we pray and appeal to God on Christmas to make us more like Christ and less like Caesar. To help us get rid of our need to be universally liked and feared. To get rid of our need for power and honor and instead turn our hearts outward to love the people around us. To set us free from our sin which imprisons us. Even to be willing to suffer and love like Jesus was. So what does that mean practically? It means seeking out those you see, that you see that are suffering and keeping them company. That probably will mean that you're not going to be quite as happy at the time because sad people are sad. But that's okay because you're following the footsteps who, of Christ who did that too. It means finding those people who face shame and hanging out with them. And when you do that, you'll probably face shame yourself. People will say, wait, you're really hanging out with them? But that's okay, because you recognize a different kind of honor, which was the honor that was found by Christ on the cross. It often means giving up your preferences for stuff like how you spend your money and your time to instead love and bless others. And that means you won't be able to do whatever you want, which can be a tough thing to give up. But that's okay, because Jesus gave up his throne on the cross and all his honor and glory, and by giving up your preferences, you'll look more like him. So let's continue to worship so we'd be, be so transfixed by the beauty of Jesus Christ that we would want to be more like him.